What's up, everybody? This is Mind Your Money with Miss Be Helpful, a show that highlights people and stories that will inspire you to get your money right. And this week on the show, I have Gigi, who has an Instagram platform called First Gen Money Musings. And I've been following Gigi for a little while, and I hadn't really reached out to her to connect. So I figured this would be a great opportunity for us to get to know each other and also to bring her on the podcast just so that we can have um, a great conversation about money. So welcome to the show, Gigi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. You know, actually, I went live on YouTube a couple weeks ago. I did two Mondays ago. I, I did a YouTube live. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, if anybody has any other questions, like, hit me up. I'm about to leave. And a bunch of people were like, what first-gen resources do you have? Like, we want to specifically be thinking about if you're the first generation in your family, like, how do you, like, learn all these things? And so I just went on Instagram, and I started adding a bunch of people looking for for first-gen hashtag, first-gen money, first-gen investors first generation education financial education and I found you I found so many other people and I was like all right I gotta make sure to invite her on the show and talk about her work because obviously it's something that more and more people want to learn about you know um specifically for a first generation audience it's always really hard to talk about money but I think if you can just immediately start off the bat with like a regret it gets the shame out the way people know okay like you're just like me you made money mistakes so I always like to talk about the the most expensive thing that you either purchased, whether it was like a thing you bought or whether it was a trip you took or an experience or service that like looking back now, it was just way too expensive and you wish you could just take it back. So I would say my biggest financial regret is that I didn't start investing from my first job. So okay. I'm, I was very fortunate that I had my first paid job Um I think when I was 14 or 15, and it was at the number one M&A law firm in the country. Ooh. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this age, I'm their youngest intern ever. I'm making like $17 an hour, which is, you know, pretty affordable for a, a corporate law firm, but it's still more money than I'd ever seen at that point in my life and significantly above minimum right. wage. Yet right. I did not know anything about investing, but if I had just started then, even with a Roth IRA, like I could probably be retired right now <laughs> and I'm 20. <laughs> For real. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably my biggest financial regret. Yeah, honestly, it's one of those things where like you you just don't know what you don't know, right? Like if you're in your early 20s and you, you know, you're getting $17 an hour, that's that's good money for somebody who just got an internship, who really just trying to figure things out. You aren't really trying to think about investing and especially a Roth IRA, which is specifically a retirement account. In your mind, when you're like in your 20s, you're like, retirement account? What the hell? That's for my grandma. Like I'm not retiring. And so it doesn't feel like it's for you doesn't feel like it's meant for you yeah I mean but and I was I was actually 15 when I had this internship so that's why I'm like oh, I had so started then like I could actually be retired now you know like if I just knew this information that like all these other people were privy to especially in, in the sort of environment that I was working in like I yeah. wish someone had pulled me to the side and was like you are so young and bright like this is what I want you to do with this money that you're getting that makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, even just if you would have just put like half of what you made in the internship and just let it grow and grow and grow, it's so true. Uh, even like when I think about the money I was making when I was like 14, 15, I was working, but back then it was like, I think minimum wage was like $7.50 an hour. So I wasn't really seeing a lot of money, but, and I also was helping my family out a lot. But when I think about like how many young people today, like, 
if your parents teach you about a custodial Roth IRA, like you're you're gonna be chilling in your twenties. You're gonna be set in your thirties. Like you're gonna have that down payment for the house while all your other friends are scrambling trying to figure it out. Like those those like generational wealth. Uh, you know, tips that get passed from one generation to the next, like that can really make or break setting you up for success with money. It's crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I love that you brought up the Roth IRA. Everybody who listens to me either on YouTube or Instagram or even who listens to the podcast know I'm obsessed with the Roth IRA. Y'all know like Roth IRA all day. <laughs> like I just, I'm always talking about it. I'm always recommending it. And you know, there's really no other account like it. So it, it makes sense that that would be something you wish you could have started earlier. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. What about on the flip side of that? A time where you did spend a lot of money, it was expensive, but you don't regret it. Even maybe somebody else would look at your budget and be like, oh, you are tripping, Gigi. I would never spend that much money like that. But for you, you're like, nope, I'll do it again in a heartbeat. It was worthwhile for me. And, you know, I don't regret it. Yeah, I would say buying my um, first property. That was definitely the highlight of my financial journey. Um, really just helped me solidify myself as an investor and because it's something that is just so tangible toward generational wealth, I absolutely don't regret it. Even though, you know, I've had, I've run into some homeowner challenges. Like I had a leak in my basement. I had a small leak in my roof. Yeah. So, you know, that has been a little frustrating, but I'm still like so grateful for the responsibility. Yeah. That's amazing. So where did you invest in real estate property? In Philadelphia. Oh, nice. Okay. So you're not far from, you know, NYC area ish. You, you're close to me. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, I, that was what prompted me to move out of New York city. Cause I was born and raised in New York city. Um, I went to college there as well, but I was like, you know, it's time for me to do something different. So I really started looking at out of the state markets and I really liked Philly just from my trips there. And, um, I found this property and I, it was actually listed on my birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, so um, it was listed on my birthday, which is in November, but I actually didn't see it until January. And when I put the offer in, and I was super shocked that it was still on the market because it was just right. such a great place. I'm like, are you sure? Like to my realtor, but honestly, I just feel like the universe really wanted me to have it. That's amazing. So, wow. So it didn't even take you that long to find a property that you like really, really loved. That was pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Girl, you got lucky. So are you living there now or do you rent it or both? Yes, I'm doing both. So I put in my offer last year in January, 2020. I closed on my property in um, the middle of March, in the middle of the pandemic. Ooh, so I was definitely wow. nervous, but um, yeah, luckily I didn't face any sort of hiccups. Um, my so it's a it's a um mixed un, mixed use property so downstairs there's actually a bodega um Cute. yeah and it's it's just really awesome i'm really happy to have it oh that's amazing well congratulations because it's, it's so true i think a lot of times when we go back in history and look over the opportunities that people have had to build wealth in this country buying a house is a huge step in that direction. And nowadays it's even harder than ever you need, especially in the NYC area, which makes a lot of sense why you stepped outside of the five boroughs because it's just so crazy expensive. But, you know, we think about what you're doing and how, um, you know, you're starting to establish this asset for yourself, not just as an opportunity for you to live in a home that you own, but for you to be able to generate passive income for yourself through 
the renting of certain, you know, rooms or, or, you know, certain apartments, if you're not there, it's just always an opportunity for you to create cash flow, which I, I have definitely, um, come to like appreciate more as I've seen a lot more people do real estate. Me, myself, I'm like, look, I can't even, if I would need a clean million to get started here in New York city. So like, I'm not even like no hope for me. <laughs> yes. You know, New York is definitely an expensive market, but luckily there's still like, there's so many grant programs that you can actually stack together. And it's one of the things that I talk about in my real estate ebook that I um, released this past month but yeah, I know like several people who have bought like three unit um, properties like in the Bronx and Harlem, et cetera, especially with stacking different grants. So getting upwards of like $80,000 worth of down payment wow. assistance makes a huge difference because, you know, oh, if yeah. you find something that's like under a mill, which is still possible, you know, in certain areas for sure, then it really does make it like something that's accessible. It's hard, <laughs> but it's yeah. possible. <laughs> that is so true. That is definitely not um, not something that's out of reach for a lot of people who are, you know, um, in a position to, to make an investment like that. I was just talking to um, uh, Ogechi from One Savvy Dollar. She also, she posts a lot about real estate on Instagram. And she was telling me that, you know, real estate is very interesting because it's one of the areas of, uh, you know, your finances where you can't get away with investing unless you have your whole package together. You have to have your income has to be right. Your debt has to be managed. Your credit score has to be good. Your, it, you can't, your, your budget has to be tight. You can't be like, you know, like when you're investing in the stock market, you can just open up a Roth IRA and throw money in there with no budget, with a bad credit score, with low savings. You can still get away with investing in stocks and bonds and mutual funds and index funds and ETFs. Nobody is going to check your financial, you know, statements. No, you're not going to have a loan officer checking. And so it's interesting that I think a lot of young people are starting to just jump into real estate off the bat because it, it, it forces you to become more responsible very early. You know, I've noticed that. Yes, that is so mm -hmm. true. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, girl, now that I know you're from New York City and you used to be a teacher just like me. Now we got to talk about like everything. So, OK, so I want to know where in New York City did you grow up? Schools did you go to? What made you become a teacher? Like all of it. I need everything. All the details. <laughs> no problem. So, um, yes, I was born in Crown Heights and um, I lived there with my mom. Um, for a few years we actually moved around quite a bit in Brooklyn mm -hmm. just because like it was just me and her for you know a while and it even back then like New York would be expensive in certain areas or certain areas were unsafe so um when I was let's see when I was around eight years old I apparently did really well on my New York state exams so one of my teachers had nominated me for a program called Prep for Prep, which is a leadership and academic program um, mm -hmm. in, that serves like New York City kids of color. And essentially I got tested into this program, which allowed me a wealth of opportunities such as going to an independent school in Park Slope, um, you know, at a hugely discounted price. Um, and you know, being a part of Prep for Prep allowed me to have access to all these different opportunities for life. So it's how I got access to that first internship at that M&A law firm or right. um, went on to eventually have all these other amazing opportunities and experiences like working at um, Goldman Sachs or partnering with JP Morgan. So 
Um, yeah, it was, <laughs> I had a very active education experience growing up. And I actually, um, I decided to become a teacher during my last year of college, just because I had already had a wealth of experience in corporate law and banking mm. and all of that through prior internship experience. And I knew that I was not interested in that whatsoever. Yep. And I did a, a ton of activism work um, and volunteer work when I was in college. So I worked with um, people who were affected by the criminal justice system, be it on probation or parole. I also was a part of this program called Columbia Youth Adventurers because I went to Columbia. And so we <laughs> partnered with three Harlem public schools and we would take them out on social and education excursions every weekend. Yeah. Love yeah, that. I really loved kids. Um, and I ultimately decided to become a teacher. And so I went back and I taught at a school in Crown Heights since that was where I was from. And it was Love just it. my way of like really wanting to give back and leveraging the privileges that I was able to have access to because of, um, you know, and I, I would say that I, I worked hard, but honestly, like a lot of this came naturally to me. And there was part of me that had a level of like survivor's guilt that like I was able to go to these schools that cost, you know, 30 to $50,000 a year. Yep. Meanwhile, some of my peers didn't, you know, they didn't test well on these things. They didn't um, uh, get access to this stuff. So like they had a very different life. So I really yeah. wanted to make sure I was giving back. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. So you, did you do the traditional like education route? You, did you stay in and finish um, with education major or minor and masters? Or did you do like a teaching program? Cause I did teach for America. So as soon as I graduated, I just came right back to Bushwick where I grew up and started teaching third and fourth grade, but it was a two year commitment. Um, and so I'm curious, did you do the traditional route or did you do like a teaching program? In college, I didn't study anything teaching related. So mm -hmm. my majors were, I was in urban studies and um, political science double major sociology concentration and women's and, le and um, business leadership scholars. So um, it was all super just geared toward the things that I was interested in. And um, I guess also things that would lend well to like a corporate environment. But like yeah. I said, like through my activism work and because I already had a wealth of experience, like doing those sort of internships, like I, I did an investment banking internship. I did impact, um, uh, invest investment as well, social entrepreneurship. I just wanted something totally different. So, um, so I, I mean, I think I was, I was just like a natural educator, so to speak. So I did really well in my interviews and yeah. So the first school that I applied to that I really liked, they hired me and I, it was a charter school actually. Um, and that was also strategic for me because I knew that they would pay more than like mm -hmm. New York City public education right, right when I got out of school and um, they were paying for, for my master's. So yeah, yeah so I did that yes. and I got my master's and I continued to teach there for another two years just to kind of see like, you know, like <sighs> how things would change because to be honest, the education system, as I'm sure you know, and you're, you're very well aware of, is not the best. Yep. There's a lot of systemic challenges that really, 
I think, affect the longevity of quality teachers being in the school systems. So I, right. I, think I gave it a solid shot. You know, I put in four years. I really tried over those those years to really um, become a edu educator and make a difference and also try to have an impact on the leadership in my school community. But ultimately, after that four years, it was time for me to go. Girl, you beat me. I, I was three years, three years in. I was like, so where's that retirement packet? Because I'm ready to retire. Like, I'm good. I'm ready to go. Like, I was exhausted. So I also taught at a charter school. I taught a charter school out in um, in uh, East New York, like kind of further out, like Canarsie. And it was just a lot. Like, it was a first-year turnaround charter, so nobody had ever heard of it before, and a lot of the students were coming from the same school building, except that, like, they split the school building in half and gave half the school to the charter school and half the school to the traditional public school. And it was just the community did not like it, of course, with good reason. If a random school just shuts down half of the existing school and, and opens up a new school in there, it's confusing. And why can't all the kids go? It was definitely, like, a weird... Um, environment but once the school once the families and the and the you know students came in and kind of got to know us and realized like a, it, it really was a lot of people from the community or like from close by neighborhoods trying to like really at least work within the confines of the system to make it better for at least some not if not all students at least some of them because it's so hard like you said to change the system it's it's almost impossible especially when you're talking about New York City because um, you know, you and I have an experience in the charter world. It's so different from the New York City Department of Education, where it's a very archaic system. It is a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of inefficiency. Things are being done the way they were being done when you and me were born or before we were born. And so it's really hard to get leaders to like pay attention to things that need to change, which is one of the reasons why you see it's 2021 and we're still not teaching kids about personal finance in schools. Like, hello. Yeah. What, you know, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? So, yeah. Yeah. If you, do you feel like you still feel the guilt or do you feel like you've channeled that into a healthier emotion where you feel like you want to just give or how you kind of manage that? Because I feel the same way and I don't I don't even know how I feel. <laughs> I'm just curious about you. No, these are such great questions. Thank you so much for asking them. Honestly, I don't feel guilty. Um, I really don't because I... Uh, I feel like I really put in a solid effort in the environment that I was, but the way that this the system was, like at the school that I had worked worked in, it just it's you can only do but so much. And I felt like my spirit was being crushed. And meanwhile, you know, through personal finance, education, and um, inspiration, I'm able to affect and impact so many people who look like me who need this sort of support and guidance in a way that is really fulfilling and I wasn't necessarily getting in the classroom so mm -hmm. I feel like all of this was like the universe putting me in alignment with my true purpose you know so I'm happy that I can take some of those classroom experiences and life experiences in general to really help people build generational wealth yeah, I, I absolutely love that because I feel like in the classroom, you don't realize how many skills you're developing besides just teaching kids how to read and write and do math. Like I, you know, public speaking, confidence, classroom management, organization, communication, both written and oral. I mean, you like you really, truly become 
so professional so fast you have to you don't have a choice these kids are in your responsibility from the moment their parents drop them off to the moment the bell rings at the end of the day and you have to make it a successful environment so you you're working your butt off and I remember going home with a bunch of work I never went home to just like relax watch Netflix chill go out on a date like I would go home and open my book my computer and my books and do more work more grading more lesson planning more emails like it just I felt like the work never ended all of that yeah yeah that's crazy with you but you know it's sad I, I, I wait to see the day that the education system changes for the better so that amazing people who have, you know, the, the potential to make an impact on students can feel safe and warm to stay in that environment and be nurtured and not be burnt out and not be just like to completely taken advantage of to the point where they feel like, okay, now, you know, I'm making, well, at the end of the day, when you take your hourly rate, if you're working all the time around the clock, you're, you're getting paid less than minimum wage to be a teacher if you are working all the time. So, you know, at the end of the day, that trade-off may or may not be worth it for some people. So it's rough out there. All right, girl. Well, tell us a little bit. I mean, you mentioned growing up in Crown Heights, you know, you mentioned you and your mom were alone and you um, jumped around neighborhood to neighborhood, apartment to apartment a lot. And I wonder what it was like kind of, you know, when it came to talking about money, if that was a thing that you and your mom did. Obviously, you were very aware that you were granted this opportunity through Prep for Prep to go on to... Um, you know, to go on to a school that was expensive, but your your parents didn't have to, your mom didn't at least have to come out of pocket the way other kids were. But what were those conversations around money if there were any? Because I feel like for me, middle school kind of was when I started. I don't know. I went to 383 in Bushwick where like. I also went to 383. No, you didn't. What year did you graduate? Oh my God. I'm talking to a Skylar head and I don't even know. That is so funny. Oh my God. What year? That's crazy. Okay, I can't remember what year, because I only went to 383, I think for... Fifth, right? Fifth or sixth? Yeah, just for sixth yeah. grade. I, I was at PSIS 308 in, um, in Bed-Stuy, and that's when I had also gotten into Prep or Prep. So then I was gotcha. only at 383 for grade. one year, and then I went to my independent school from 7th okay. through 12th. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that did prep, prep for prep that started with me at Skylar, either did fifth and sixth or just sixth grade, but then seventh and eighth, they were out because of prep for prep. Like a lot of them went to St. Anne's and some other schools, that, you know, through prep for prep. So it's funny, you know, I, I know so many people in that, in that world, but yeah, I feel like for me, thinking about money started at Skylar for me because in my elementary school, everybody was poor. Like everybody was, it was to the point where everybody was wearing broken pay less sneakers. It was, it was like normal and we didn't even care. We were just running around in the, in the yard at recess. We didn't really pay attention to what each other was wearing or whatever. And then when I got to middle school, like, Oh, all of a sudden, if you, cause we had to wear that uniform. So the sneakers and your backpack all of a sudden became like, what showed if you have money. So like if you didn't have Jordans or Nikes or Diesels or whatever the hell, Pumas, whatever stuff was popping back then, you were definitely going to get made fun of. And so I started getting made fun of all the time. And that's when I started going home and asking my parents, I want Jordans, I want Nikes. I don't want to wear Payless sneakers. I don't want to wear these K-Swiss no more. And then I remember my parents first kind of telling me like, listen, we don't have money for those things. That, that first started for me when I was like 11, 12 years old. So I'm curious, like uh, those conversations, did they ever happen with you and your mom? Or did you feel like you were, it was very clear, like don't ask for that because we don't got it. <laughs> yeah. So my mom has always been super open about money, which I'm very grateful for. She's someone who has always been very financially strategic. I think especially like 
having to be, um, you know, a single mom and not really having financial support from any other family members. I always remember her like negotiating with um, different companies, credit card companies, in-store negotiations, at having no shame, being like, is there a coupon for this? Or can you offer me a discount? Like, you know, I like to describe her as warmly demanding or like charmingly demanding. Um, and she just really encouraged me to be sort of confident about that. Um, so I, yeah, I was very used to hearing her like having these conversations, making sure she's writing everything down. She would keep a specific notebook where she would say like who she spoke to, what yeah. their identification number was, what they, you know, what the before rate was, what the after rate was. So I love that. Um, seeing her use coupons for things. So like, actually I used to get made fun of before middle school um, because I would wear mm. like the gap or, you know what I'm saying? Like, or Oshkosh Bigosh and, yes. you, know, <laughs> 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 you know, and the, um, some of the people in my school are wearing like baby fat or like all these right. other things. And I, we didn't have that, but I didn't have any shame about that. I didn't care. I only started to feel shame about my, about my like class status when I went right. to school in Park Slope because that was also the first time I had ever seen Park Slope and I I was like this is just one like one family lives in this whole brownstone yep. like oh you have you have a country house and you have a beach house mm -hmm. you know like you get new outfits every single time you have like you get all these extra lessons paid for you have um a nanny who is you know usually like black or latina you know what i'm mm -hmm. saying like it was just such a huge culture shock for me i was yes. um so that's really when i became aware of like oh i'm i'm poor like you know right like i didn't even know i didn't even know i was poor y'all didn't tell me i was poor why you didn't y'all tell me i was poor I'm like, I'm sharing a one bedroom with my mom and like y'all have five floors in your house and then you have a couple other houses. Like that's different. Yes, real different. You know, it's crazy. And I think if anything, you're so fortunate to have had that culture shock happen to you so early in life because that culture shock didn't happen for me until I went off to Brown. And at that, at that point, the social pressures of like trying to fit in with these kids was what got me into over $20,000 of credit card debt because I was like, oh, y'all going to the mall? I'm coming. Oh, y'all going to the movies? I'm going. Or there's a party in Boston. We're driving. I'm coming. Or, we, you know, and every time we would do, everybody would do something, I felt like I couldn't say no because I'm already different and I can't, I don't want to be, you know, even more perceived as even more different. So now I'm going to have to do everything that I can to blend in. And one of those things is to just go with the flow, spend money on things at the mall. If we're, if that's what we're doing, we're doing it, put it on the credit cards and just pay it back slowly. And that, that social pressure to have like even stupid things like having a name brand purse or having a name brand, like pair of, of boots or, you know, it was just like, I gave into that social pressure so bad because in middle school I couldn't do it. Cause my parents didn't, you know, couldn't give, didn't want to spend, didn't have the money. And, we're not going to entertain me. And in high school, I did have a job, but I was, I had like the same, like two or three pairs of sneakers. I would rock all the time. I would just recycle them over and over. It was rinse and repeat with my Air Max, with my, like, it was just the same ones, you know, and I got away with it because I was smart and funny. So I had my own little place in the clicks, 
But in college, it was just a totally different ballgame. Like, it was the kind of wealth that you just can't even imagine, like, because you never had that exposure. So I imagine that getting to college, getting to high school, or, you know, in your older high school years and then going to college, that you didn't have to worry about that shock because you had experienced it already years before. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely, I feel like I kind of had gotten over it. Um, By the time I got to college, it was definitely still a challenge and a struggle because at like during my freshman year of high school, we actually got priced out of New York. So we moved to Newark, New Mm -hmm. Jersey, but um, I still commuted to the school every day. So I had like Um. two hour daily commute back and forth from Newark like I was super embarrassed to like have friends over you know um because especially at that time in 2012 like Newark like was still considered like the hood um but it was an opportunity for my family to buy a home and like they bought a three a three unit home so again that helped like with our um, mortgage burden because they were able to rent out two of the units yep but it was tough for me like knowing that like I like have so little money compared to my peers that I have to live out of state and and commute to school every day you know like by myself so that I still have access to this opportunity um so I kind of like withdrew myself and um I actually was mostly friends with people outside of my independent school so Mm -hmm. my best friends went to like Baruch and Beacon um because there's so like more like financial diversity because like you know, such as yourself, like you, there, there are kids who look like us who are able to get access to these schools because of, you know, how they've done or whatever, but they weren't necessarily well off like all my peers in my independent school. Right. So that really helps me a lot. Um, and then when I went to college, like when I went to Columbia, it was, I also like, it, I was just so into my work and also like still prioritizing my friendships that I had grown up with rather than building relationships with kids at school because I just felt like I was more grown than them you know and that's not to say like (laughs) yeah not to say that like I thought I was better or anything like that but it's just like because I had experienced this New York City life I'm like y'all like this is new for y'all this is not new for me I have nothing to prove to you at this point Um, and I was also lucky because in a sense, because like of that exposure, like, I'm going to be honest, like my freshman year, I used to party a lot, like in New York Mm -hmm. City, (laughs) you know, the city is your playground. What what else you going to do when you're 19 and you're in New York City? (laughs) And I mean, and at the time, like the New York City clubs were like very lucrative or like for yeah and for certain groups of people like I was modeling at the time so I would go out with like hang out with like model promoters so we would get like dinners Mm -hmm. paid for you know what I'm saying so it was it was an opportunity for me to like experience this sort of like luxurious lifestyle that was paid for again I know because I have a certain privilege because of how I looked but it's like like I'm eating at this five-star restaurant and I don't have to worry about it or I'm like getting drunk you know what I'm saying like well I'm gonna take advantage (laughs) like I can't afford this. So look, this is my free meal. This is my free dinner and I get to have fun. So yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Shoot. That's tempting. I would definitely have taken advantage too. Um, And I'm fortunate because my mom, even I didn't get a full ride, but my mom negotiated 
um, for my college tuition. So, so technically she like made too much money for me to get like a full ride, which is ridiculous because you know what I'm saying? Like she's a single parent, like what? Right. And, um, you know, at, it was just ridiculous. So even though my mom, I'm fortunate, my mom was able to, um, like make, I think at that point she was just starting to make six figures in her career, even though she didn't go to college. My mom actually graduated from college after me. Yeah. But so it's just like, y'all shouldn't be asking our, you know, our family for, for money or whatever. She made too much money on paper, but I only had about 20 K in federal student loans. Um, and so like those also got deferred when I got my master's, like, so it wasn't anything crazy, you know, and my interest rates were all like under 4%. So yeah, because I I was out here swiping visas and MasterCards, girl, but nobody was there to tell me, girl, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah, I was super mindful of my money in college because I also knew that I didn't want to live at home once I graduated. So that's right. I after that first year, I was like, okay, what do I need to do to be able to get my own apartment in New York City Mm -hmm. when I graduate? So I opened up my first credit card. Um, and I but I kept my utilization below 30% um to build my credit score. So I was able to like graduate, you know, like with a high 700s credit score and then like have like three to four months worth of like rent saved up so I can get my own apartment without my mom. That's awesome. That's amazing. And you look how far you come because now you actually own your own property, which is amazing. So tell us, tell us a little bit about first gen money musings. Is this something that you decided to start more so for yourself as an accountability measure? Or was it something where you knew you wanted to help like grow a community and help other people learn from your story? Yeah, it started like, um, I officially started First Gen Money Musings this past summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, like the conversation started, I want to say in 2018, when just like on Black Friday, I just shared like a story to my my personal Instagram page about like owning the brands that you buy. And I was mm-hmm. just encouraging folks. I was like, you know, like, yeah, this is Black Friday, but like consider like, buying these companies in the stock market um, because you'll get these higher returns. So I did like a little demo of like how to open up a brokerage account. And I thought it was like not any, not a big deal, but like it ended up like blowing up and like, you know, getting like thousands of views and stuff. And I was like, whoa, like I didn't realize that's random. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that my peers really needed to have this conversation. So I started sharing more about like my personal finance journey um, on my personal Instagram page um, and just sharing different tips. And then also I realized how important it was because um, at the time I was living in Bedside and I was actually living across the street from my old elementary school. And um, at the time for my lease renewal, I really wanted like two women of color to come in and move in to replace my roommates. Yeah. But it was so hard to find um, women of color who mm. like had everything that would have made them be approved by my landlords. And I was like quite shocked because I kind of had this like assumption that like, oh, like we're college educated. Like we all, we all have like 700 credit scores or we all have like a few, you know, months worth of money saved up. Um, but it just wasn't the case. So I realized the right. urgency 
And so I started sharing way more. Um, yeah. So then eventually, like, I got, I stopped doing it on my personal Instagram. And so I started first gen money musings. That's awesome. And now you're about to hit 4,000 followers, which is amazing. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the content that you post also, I feel like it's besides being super relatable, which I think is what brings people back. It's also like really just easy and digestible, like quotes and, you know, um, retweets and images, like things that it's quick graphics. Like, do you know, I mean, there's just quick things where I feel like there's one that I really like. Let me see if I can go back to it. Non-money things that help attract abundance, you know, gratitude, therapy, self-love. It, it's more than money. It's really this holistic approach to your lifestyle that really does interact with money in a lot of ways, but it's more than money. And I think I, I mean, I just couldn't agree more with the, that ethos and that culture of like making sure we know it's not just about the dollar dollar bills that's important, but there's so much more than that in your mind and within you that you have to get right in order to really align your values to your finances. Exactly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that affirmation. Yeah. I love it. I really love it. Um, okay. So what about now? What is your life like now? You're living in Philly. You have this awesome house you own. What's your, your work life? Are you now full-time engineer? Are you still doing education stuff? Is, is uh, first gen money musings, all the things that you do? What, what's your life like now? Yeah. So I, um, got a scholarship for, um, an engineering boot camp, And so I finished that in December and then I also got hired to be an engineering, um, teaching fellow. So that's what I'm doing right now. I have wow. students that I'm basically getting paid to continue learning and to like mentor students <laughs> my programs. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm super grateful for that. I really love it. I think tech is so important for, um, you know, black and brown folks to get into like, because these, these um, algorithms and all of these different systems are literally changing the way that we think and interact with the world. They have yeah. such an impact and power over our lives. So I'm super happy to be in the position to like, you know, like kind of make it fun and cute and like encourage, like, especially other women of color to get into this field and try to make it as accessible as possible. So I'm yes. definitely gonna be sharing some more stuff about that, like on my platform. But yeah, <laughs> that's mostly what I'm doing now. And um, now that I'm done with my engineering program, because like, it was so intense, I basically like took like four months off of my Instagram, like, and my platform because of all the coding work that I had to do. But now it feels like I have the time to create content again and to mm -hmm. really focus on building up my brand so that it becomes something like way more sustainable. So did you get into engineering just like on a whim? Was it something that you always had interest in? Because you said in undergrad, you were urban studies, sociology, and then you did the classroom instruction. You had experience banking and corporate wasn't your thing. And now all of a sudden you're like, what about engineering? Like how did like that just land in your lap? Like what happened? You just became a coder one day to the next girl. <laughs> um, I honestly, what interested me in becoming a software engineer is like my, okay. So this is like, <laughs> This is so funny and random and people always like laugh about it. But like seeing my friends um, who speak a lot about certain like political and like social justice issues, like get their accounts shadow banned on Instagram. And like my personal Instagram is also shadow banned. So like I can't see like who liked my photos. Some of my wow. things are hidden. 
Yeah, I, I like don't have the updated features on my personal Instagram. So just learning about how like these platforms can like really suppress our, our voices and like suppress our visibility inspired me to be like, oh no, like I need to know what's happening here. Like I need to know how to do this, you know, myself. Like I need to be able to create um, you, the platforms and experiences that are actually going to serve our different communities. So <laughs> that's what inspired that's me. Yeah. And I, it was also like, I was excited about the challenge because I've always kind of been afraid of math um, Mm -hmm. just because of like some like teaching trauma that I have, like, you know, from years. So it was a part of me healing that in myself. And then just like showing like, girl, you can do this. I love that. You know, I, oh, my boyfriend does a lot of coding too. And I feel like he always tells me like, it doesn't, the math is not a big part of it. It's more logic. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm scared of logic too. I'm an emotional ass girl. I'm an emotional ass girl. I don't know if I could do the logic. <laughs> that is too funny. Yes. But he's always encouraging me to learn. I, I remember I downloaded this app called Mimo just to try like some basic coding. It's kind of like the um, Duolingo for coding. And I tried it for a few weeks and I was kind of into it, like just doing the really basic lessons. And after a while, you know, I just stopped using it. But it's so true. It's like to see so many more women of color stepping up and taking on that like craft and being like, we need to be at the table when it comes to tech. Tech is the future. There's no denying that. And especially when we talk about finances, because fintech is everything around money now. If you if you are you know, looking for bank accounts, probably going to be on your phone or on the computer that you set it up. If you're trying to invest, it's definitely going to be on your phone or computer that you set up investments. If you, you know, so it's, it's interesting how, as we look towards the future, we also have to make sure that we're challenging ourselves to be a part of the most critical, um, conversations and tech is definitely one of them. So, I mean, I always say to myself, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn, but girl, you're actually learning. And so hats off to you. That is amazing. I'm over here talking and you walk in the walk. I love it. It's never too late. And that's the beauty of it, right? Like you can pick up a course like online if you feel like it. That's right. That's so true. It's the same thing with finances, right? You can be so 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 frustrated and stressed out by your finances and it is never too late like you can get your money life together when you're in your 50s when you're 60s so, so what you still have decades to live what it doesn't matter like why keep making excuses when you can literally fix it anytime you can start making time for it so i i definitely love that message um okay cool well we've learned so much about you i first of all i can't believe that we have so much in common we both went to skyler we're both from brooklyn we both did new york city teaching in charter school specifically in brooklyn like it's crazy how much our paths have um you know so many common touch points so i'm so glad that i made time to chat with you and get to know you better thank you yeah thank you so much for making the time thank you i'm so honored like i'm so i had such a great time talking to you about this stuff it just flowed so easily (laughs) That's right, girl. That's right. We got. We have to do more of that proactive reaching out to other women of color to network because I feel like the podcast was my excuse to start reaching out to other people. Otherwise, I would have just been creating videos on YouTube by myself. And so I push, put that out there like I'm going to make a podcast so that I can have more conversations. So I, I love it. If you're eventually down the line looking for a new project to help you connect with other people consider a podcast. It's just, it's just a great excuse to like reach out to somebody and say, hey, can you jump on here 10, 15, 20 minutes and and then boom, your network just grows every time you have a new conversation. It's awesome. 
absolutely right. <laughs> All right, girl. So the last thing I always ask on the show is I'm going to take a dollar bill and I'm going to post a dollar bill with your face on it and with your money motto. So you could be a money mantra, money message. Essentially, every time people are going to spend money or transact um, with money, that they are reminded of this message that you want them to know about money and about being, you know, sort of just kind of thinking about their finances differently. So what would that money mantra be? Whew, that is so tough. I feel like I have so many. There's, uh, <laughs> um, hmm. There's one that I like. It's not just like a one quick, quick mantra, but mm-hmm. um, money finds its way to me. Money recognizes me. Money is comfortable around me. Yes, it's an affirmation to invite money into your life. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. All right, girl. Well, I'm definitely going to put that on your dollar bill and I'll tag you on Instagram so you can share it and so you can see it. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to stay connected. Yes. Thank you, Gigi. Have a good rest of your week. You too, Yana. You take care. (laughs) 